So that's what I'm saying. The text is like an object. It's gonna change perspective based on where you're standing. I don't know. Hello? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I missed you, baby sweet. It was a day. Hmm? It was a day. Please tell me you're seeing this too. From Seattle, we are drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. Oh, hey, Michael. Hey, hey, Taylor. How's it going? It's going, man. We're back to remote recording this week. Um, I think that we're probably going to have a shortage of episodes. We should probably warn the listeners about holiday seasons coming up. And we've each got different trips and priorities. So I think we're probably going to only have uh, maybe three more episodes before the end of the year. Does that sound right? That sounds about right. Yeah. COVID continues to rage. Get togethers for the holidays become complicated. We'll record as best we can in between all of that uh, organizational finagling. Yes. Yeah, Rescreenings will stay more. on schedule. We'll have one of those in the first week or so of every month. Um, and then we'll be doing privately quite a bit of binge watching to make sure that we, we have accurate lists for our January recording of the best of. And um, yeah, I think that's that's most of the housekeeping in general. Yeah, seems very possible that by the time we convene in January for a list of best of the year episode, we'll be talking about some films that we hadn't even covered yet on the show because of how much uh, is kind of coming out in the next six weeks or so. Yes, or yeah, the, the lump of movies that's going to come out um, is truly unprecedented. I I didn't know Let Them All Talk was going to come out in December. I don't know about you. I thought it was getting pushed. Well, I know Wonder Woman 84 will probably top your list, right? I think that there's 0% chance that it even makes it onto my considerations, buddy. Oh, I thought you were <laughs> going to say even onto your TV screen. <laughs> um, uh, if I go spend time with certain family, I guarantee that we'll probably put that on. Yeah, I think there's a pretty good chance I will too. Christmas Day, that is exactly what I will do after snowboarding, perhaps. Just mm -hmm. zone out, maybe fall asleep. Perfect. Yeah, it'll be on the TV. I don't know if I'll watch it. <laughs> yeah. Good deal. All right. Let's get on to first impressions and start with Let Them All Talk. Did you always talk like that? I'm going to start work on my manuscript. Swim at three, dinner at seven, back to work or bed or both. I'll probably work in bed. I kind of feel like I'm spending time with three almost like... Dinosaurs. No. <laughs> you believe Alice and her book determined your whole life? The consequences on my life of her actions were unacceptable. Want to go have a drink later? No, I can't. I just don't know who you are anymore. Does anybody trust you? We really lost each other. All right, Michael, that was the trailer for Steven Soderbergh's Let Them All Talk. What do you think? I think this looks, this looks like a pretty good time. I think I saw it comes out on December 10th, if Correct. I caught that correctly, right mm -hmm. around the corner. Very exciting. 
I think the performances look pretty fun. I like that these are, you know, super talented, famous actresses, but these are kind of relatively laid back, uh, fairly easygoing performances from the looks of it. Um, looks fairly kind of light in tone, has kind of a nice snappy rhythm to it and fairly witty. I think this looks like a good time. What about you? I agree, as I normally do with Steven Soderbergh movies. I, I'm looking forward to this i think diane weist looks very very good here she's given um kind of third fiddle it looks like almost second fiddle and she can really sing in those types of roles where she can really just pop a zinger in a sentence and just kind of floor you after um the other actor has has had a, a monologue say Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the punctuation that she can deliver here, I'm pretty excited for. Additionally, Soderbergh's been obsessed with a television show called Below Deck. I don't know if you're mm-hmm. familiar with that. It's like a reality television show about um, cruise ships and like the restaurant um, on the cruise ship, as well as like the, the staff mm-hmm. and crew of the ship and all the melodrama and drama that happens, like a reality television show. And I think that um, him getting to channel all that energy that he has about that show into a film is, I think this is going to be very good. I swear if we had some tally machine that kept a record of all the different directions that we mentioned on the show, Soderbergh has to be near the top of the list mentions wise, right? I, I believe that is correct. And I take sole responsibility for that joy that I bring every listener. I, I think you had something to do with that. Yeah. Just manufacturing. Um, Well, all right. Enough of Steven Soderbergh, the famed director, Steven Soderbergh. On to Pieces of a Woman, starring Vanessa Kirby. I wanted the baby to decide when she wanted to come. My daughter came into this world. For the time that she did. And I can't bring her back. Martha, is that you? How are you? Sixty to seventy percent of these cases, we rarely find a satisfactory explanation. There is something between us. Certain things medically, we just don't have answers for. Very sorry for your loss. All right, we just watched the trailer for Cornell Mundruxko's Pieces of a Woman, starring Vanessa Kirby and Shia LaBeouf. When you introduced this, I know you said it stars Vanessa Kirby, but not Shia LaBeouf. Should I read into that? I know essentially nothing about this movie. And then I just watched the trailer. I try to do that normally for all of our first impressions titles. I try not to know anything. Soderbergh obviously is an exception because I'm just reading his website quite often. Um, That's just 
personal preference thing. I try not to know anything and pieces of a woman I've heard a lot about, but didn't want to know anything more than Vanessa Kirby. I'm thrilled that Shia is in this. I think that what he did in the trailer looks like fantastic work, great supporting actor work. He's really good at that. I think that he's um, overlooked for his role in Nymphomaniac. Um, and I see a lot of that type of, of ambiance here to the role that he's playing. Um, I am thrilled that you said the name of the director because I won't even attempt. Um, this right. looks fantastic. And I think you're going to be upset, but I believe that this is where we have to have the conversation. What's a 2020 film and what's a 2021 film, Michael? It says select theaters, December. It's not actually available for you and I to watch until January. This is hostiles all over again. Oh, to me, this will definitely be 2020. It'll be it'll be on everybody's 2020 lists. Um, I think just because it's getting the theatrical release under the wire in 2020, I think it'll be on the 2020 uh, scoreboard for me. But how many people are actually going to have seen it in 2020? Yeah, but that was the same thing with like Little Women last year. You always get a couple of those. I think Silence. Little Women was wide release. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, In Christmas. A wide release theatrical launch is totally different than a COVID limited theatrical release when New York and California are shut down essentially. So like what theater is it actually playing? Yeah, I just, I, I I have to imagine everybody will primarily put this on there. 2020 list if you're looking at the major publications but i think i'm going to put it on my 2021 probably gonna save it see see how the 2020 list looks and be like i'll save it and start out strong with 2021 in general i try to do it like out of the actual year in which i watched it so like if a 2019 movie came out in 2019 and i didn't get a chance to see it till this year i'll include it in this year's list um in general I mean, there's definitely a fine line there, but since I will not be able to see this unless we can get a a screening copy before the end of the year, it's going to be a 2021 for me. It's going to be a hostile situation. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. uh, This director, Cornell Mandruxko, I'll try that one more time, even though I'm sure that is incorrect. He directed White White God, which I did not realize uh, until now, but I remember that film. I don't know if you saw that one. I cannot wait for some pieces to come out that try to explore the common themes between the movie about the dogs and a woman's grieving over her miscarriage. I think that is a fascinating uh, follow-up. I think you're leaping to a miscarriage. I don't know that that's what we, what happened. It sound like it might've been a successful birth and then a death. That could be too. Yeah. A, a, a lost child in some, yeah. in some way or another. Yep certainly possible um but yeah i would second most of what you said i think it looks really good today's podcast is presented by podgo podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from podgo we recently joined as members and you can too apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience that's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o all right Let's dig right into it with Abel Ferrara and Willem Dafoe in Sportin' Life. I participate in helping make the frame. I love it when I play with the camera. Hey! <laughs> what genre? 
sono Adolf Ferrara <ride> e sono un regista. There's the wisdom of the body that's a very important part of performing and that's what gets you going because characters are revealed through actions and I think the best part of performing is how you melt into the action, you know, it sounds kind of zen, but it is, you know, it's really about the quality of engagement. That for me is the most attractive kind of performing where you can disappear into not the role so much as the things you're doing have a kind of attention and a kind of openness and a kind of flexibility and wonder that we don't normally have in life. All right, Michael, this is a 61 minute documentary, quote unquote, about the life of Willem Dafoe and Abel Ferrara and their working relationship essentially in like the last decade. As far as I can tell, we got some Pasolini in there. It looked like we got some Tommaso. Um, what do you think about this documentary? It's an interesting little documentary. It's streaming online for free. I think we both watched it at thefilmstage.com. I think it's on IndieWire too, although the IndieWire link was not working super well for me. It's It does feel pretty tossed together to me and like a project that required fairly minimal effort but i enjoyed it nonetheless i i think um some aspects are a little more interesting than others it has kind of a collage like feel just because of the variety of clips versus footage of willem and abel on press tours versus pandemic footage that i did not expect um given the description of the documentary so i enjoyed this i'll start there but um there are some things i liked more than others. What about you? I liked the parts where Willem and Abel were talking. I thought that most of the rest of it was pretty off key and didn't actually have a point. Um, yeah, yeah. And the the general thrust of that ends up being that the documentary is essentially about nothing, but has moments in which I reveled. And that mm-hmm. almost makes up for a lot of the stuff, but it doesn't make up for all of it. Which oh, yeah. means that I I feel like really charitably I could give this a three, but more realistically, it's probably like a one and a half as a film project. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I would not, in, I could not in good conscience recommend this to anybody who wasn't familiar with probably both Willem Dafoe and Abel Ferrara and was just particularly keen on getting a sense of their personalities and their working relationship a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's kind of enough for me. I kind of like that. And... I I, I kind of like the fact that while this is largely about like the promotion of Siberia earlier this year, um, that it's just kind of acknowledging the world at large. You know, I think it would be um, it's kind of this interesting balance of ego and modesty by looking back on that event, the birth of this movie into the world while recognizing that like that was the last thing on anybody's mind at the time that it came out. But I also don't think any of the pandemic footage shows you anything you don't already know or that he really has anything to say about it. Um, no, it felt genuinely gimmicky um, in the sense that that both Willem and Abel reside in Italy. And like all the footage we get is essentially like of American government or a, another national um, area and like what they're going through or like the subways of New York with plague masks. 
there's there's no reflection of what it is in Italy, um, which would actually be like a sincere interaction at some level. Um, so I really don't understand at all what the project was aiming for in that sense. Yeah, the most you get in terms of his reflecting on the experience in Italy is him wandering around when there's nobody outside and saying, there's nobody out here, bro. And that's about yeah. it. That's that's the extent of it. So yeah, not much there. Um, yeah, I mean, I it's 60 minutes long. I don't think this is asking too much of your time. That's why like, it is, there's just not even enough there for me to dislike it necessarily, but certainly not a work of great craft, but I just don't mind getting always getting a more and more of a sense of the personalities of these artists um, and what that relationship kind of looks like. I know he says at one point that this is a documentary about documentary filmmaking. I don't really buy that at all. I don't think that's, I don't think it reveals to me anything about documentary filmmaking, but um, okay, sure. That, I don't know how to make sense of that. Did did he really say that it's a documentary about documentary filmmaking? I don't think I caught that. Yeah, I think verbatim. There's or it's a documentary about documentaries or something like that. There's nothing in this about a documentary at yeah, all. I, it's just about like his life and the way that he sees the world. I think you mentioned the word ego earlier. I think that's great. Mm. And I think that that what makes that a great point is Willem constantly you know, reaffirming Abel's ego essentially in front of us in like this really complimentary, lovely friendship way that just r reminds you of like um, Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks or, or something, you know, mm -hmm. where it's just these two partners who are, are slowly going into the sunset together um, and, and making these great points. And y y I liked this documentary most when Willem was making a point about you know, modern working life and how in many ways it's better to have your work be part of your personal relationships. Um, mm -hmm. it, when they're reflecting on life and like more interesting pieces of philosophy rather than, you know, the uh, asides to him playing music or, um, you know, random footage of him signing a poster at, at Berlinale and then watching a, a government official from America speak about COVID. Totally. I don't really get anything out of the musical portions of the film that just, it's, it just feels like filler content. They're like, we got to get this thing at least up to an hour somehow. Keep well, I, I think what they saw was they were like, oh, we have an opportunity. He said the word filmmaking is like rhythm. Now we're just going to put mm. in guitar. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, we should say that I think this was um, financed or part of a project um, uh, associated with St. Laurent, the, the fashion designer. Isn't mm -hmm. they a fashion designer? Yeah. Um, I believe so. I don't know if I've ever seen a project that was, you know, um, put on by or, or financed by a fashion designer quite like this or th th that ever really worked for me. I feel like these always feel a little tossed together and done for like for a paycheck, perhaps. Um, I'm kind of surprised that like St. Laurent even bothered once they saw this. They're like, what is this? <laughs> well, in, in a time when content is you know, thinning out almost, um, or the brief time when it was, it seems like now we've got a rebound. I, I don't know. I, I think that this makes for a good promotional material to go in the extra of mm. extra featurettes of Siberia. 
But I, yeah. I can never see this standing on its own two feet being distributed uh, for a theatrical release for, for viewers. This is just so uh, meandering and um, un, unfocused and unfortunately unthoughtful, despite the moments of deep insight from the, the two central figures. You get Willem Dafoe with a fantastic mustache like the best one I've ever seen. Although I think he might have one in the lighthouse. Maybe that is uh, competition, but boy, does it look good. Yeah, I, I will agree to that. It sure does. Um, <laughs> I mean, what else is there to talk about with this documentary? You've got Willem Dafoe's facial hair. You've got Abel making some, some fun repartees about, you know, um, life and the way that he sees it and then you get a bunch of kind of filler gunk um you get some religiosity for a bit i think there was a very funny moment early on in the film that totally went over my head until much later where uh abel asked for uh, asked willem how old is christ and i was mm. like what a what and then like 30 <laughs> minutes later i remembered that he played christ in the passion of the christ and that's what he was talking to him about. And I was like, oh, okay. That's, that's like a fun little, little moment. But um, aside from those fun little moments, the, the structure of the thing is just bad. Yeah, there were a couple little factoids that caught my ear or caught my eye or whatever. I, there was one where they're talking about some of the, the pictures that are in Siberia, kind of towards the end of Siberia. And Willem says that those are actually fake. Uh, pictures of his family that mm -hmm. was kind of interesting i remember being curious about what those were because they come out of nowhere in siberia um there's some little tidbits but um no great theme here to uh really chew on yeah i mean there's there's that other moment where ferrara says um you know ulysses is always coming home it it's it's not a mm. you know that he doesn't put a lot of thought into his films it's about the rhythm of it, the bump, a bump, a bump, a bump, a bump. And I think that that's very interesting to hear from him. We're about to talk about Sidney Lumet at the end of the show and his film network. Um, he also was very much a practical filmmaker. He says that any great linguistic or, or any deeper meaning to his films is not from him, in fact, but from the material or the performers. He's just there to do the job of making the film come to life. Um, and I think that Ferrara is very much of that practical attitude. Um, so I, I did find those little tidbits interesting. But once again, beyond that, that, you know, cinephilia morsel that he's giving me, there's not much to enjoy here. For Ferrara aficionados, perhaps watch yes. it online for free. Mm. Um, let me ask you the, the infamous question, Michael. Do you have a favorite scene? Yeah, I do. I think it was pretty funny when Ferrara's in an interview with um, Willem Dafoe and he has this one liner, this little metaphor about old keys not opening new doors and everyone's reaction to that. They're like, oh, dang, you got some wisdom here. OK, OK. I thought that was pretty funny. Um, probably the one uh, scene in this movie that made me laugh. I enjoyed that. What about you? Uh, I'll go with the second scene that made me laugh because that did make me laugh when Willem just kept congratulating him about his deep wisdom. Um, mm -hmm. It's when Willem um, puts a photo of Abel Ferrara over his crotch 
and begins mm. making it talk. <laughs> I, I found that quite amusing. I don't remember the exact details of, of what he said, but just um, that that was such a fun moment to see the relationship that these two men have together. And the, the goofiness they can do. Yes. Sorry to cut you off. It's it just totally seconding it. Uh, he has such a distinctive kind of craggy voice for us. So Defoe's impression, hilarious. Uh -huh. That's Yeah, you're right. That's the funnier moment for sure. All right. Let's get on to the dark and the wicked. Your mama, she was saying things. She would sit right beside him just whispering. But you weren't talking to him. We found it in her pocket. She didn't believe in God. What does it matter whether he believed? I found Mom's diary. What if she saw something out there? I told y'all not to come. All right, Michael, we watched this movie. Anything else you want to talk about? <laughs> yeah, oddly enough, uh, you know, even though we described sport and life as barely even a documentary, I think I might have more to say about that one than this film, The Dark and the Wicked, from Brian Bertino, who both wrote mm -hmm. the script and directed. He made The Strangers um, as well. He made Quite The Strangers. Famously. He made a film called The Monster with Zoe Kazan. I saw that one as well, which I also did not care for. I had heard some good things about this film, The Dark and the Wicked, and uh, that that put it on my radar. But I was disappointed, and it sounds like you were as well. Yes, I was continuously disappointed. I was like, well, maybe. Mm. He's got a chance here. And I just kept giving him rope, and he just kept on hanging himself as well as the mother. Ooh. Oh, spoiler alert. <laughs> I love um, it. Uh. So, I mean, I mean, just in general, this is one of those times where I just can't excuse the foreshadowing, where mm. I, I know everything that's going to happen. At, at, and we're going to talk about full spoilers here. So if you don't want that, turn off the episode or skip to network, because I knew that the fingers were going to get cut off. You could tell by the tone of the movie that that was going to happen. You could tell he was going to kill himself and that they weren't really there because the movie had established that that was going to occur. You could mm -hmm. tell that the nurse was going to be involved in some depraved finale act. You didn't know if she was being possessed by the devil or if she was going to kill herself like the other people, but you knew that something was going to happen. I knew that the fucking spider was going to come out of the guy's mouth because they had set it up tonally. Like there's just so much blatant foreshadowing in this screenplay, in this film that is inexcusable. A little CGI spider, right? I do not think that thing was actually on her face. Correct. CGI spider. Yeah, yeah. 
fair, fair predictability doesn't help it. Um, for me, it partly just doesn't help that this feels like it's just the next iteration on kind of an ongoing theme in horror right now about one with one horror film after another at the end of the day, wanting us to say that it's ultimately really about grief. And I'm just getting a little tired of different uh, takes on that theme. I, I'm just ready for some new material. Maybe if um, this had come out 10 years ago or something like that, pre-Babadook, I would have felt differently. I think this, I think this, this is, that theme is getting a little tired for me. And uh, I, I guess you could maybe commend it for some tonal consistency. This is pretty bleak and dark and dour top to bottom but for me it actually just got kind of exhausting um i was really ready for some variation in tone not the more of the same darkness and maybe that's just me but uh i thought it got a little old yeah i i think that right when it starts you can tell um I, I mean, I don't know when this was written. It could have been written a long time ago, and, and now it's just finally getting made. But the direct similarity to Hereditary has to be kind of acknowledged in general. I haven't seen The Babadook. You're probably totally right that, that it's in line with that grief as well. But the, the beginning of the film ha has some good, I won't say great, cinematography, has a decent idea of um, leading you into like a brooding um, type of a horror that, that felt like it had promise. And then it graduates into like the lowest form of like the B genre that, that it's interacting with. It's like grief. Okay, we're going we're gonna to establish the creepy moments and then we're going to cut her fingers off and then she's going to go kill herself and then there's going to be a scream and then they're not going to run away until it's too late and then the other one's going to stay and that i mean just formulaically it's a very general horror screenplay premise that you've seen regurgitated hundreds of times by now if you go back to like the 70s b horror films um there's nothing offered new here there's really nothing that feels sincere um, I think that the reason that The Strangers is so fun is because you kind of follow the villain. And here, you never get a sense of fun. I think in your review, you mentioned levity that never mm. comes. Um, great point, because as you said, the tone becomes tragically monotonous. And you just know mm -hmm. exactly what you're getting. And because you know exactly what you're getting from that monotony and the lack of levity, like I said, you can predict every single beat that's going to come because these characters were introduced in this way, then they were taken away. Now they're coming back for this one moment. So you can tell that all of it's just kind of bullshit to, to get you to the point that they're trying to make, which is a very insincere, pointless point. And that's why the film ends up failing because it, it doesn't have two legs that are original to stand on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I should say that I'm okay. I think I'm okay with the point. I mean, we should say just very briefly story wise, it's about a grown brother and sister who come back to their home, uh, to, uh, their parents home in rural Texas it's on a farm. Their dad's deathly ill. He's bedridden. Their mom has urged them not to come for reasons that are never exactly specified. And they discover that some kind of demon, perhaps the devil himself, is there on the farm with them. And it escalates into scares from there uh, that escalate in degree. Um, but yeah, the 
the themes that we're talking about are um, one, perhaps them grappling with this father's impending death. And then two, as you mentioned, not lo- not too long into the film, the mother hangs herself as well. So there's also just the kind first of first 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Very quickly. Um, and um, yeah, I, I, I'm okay with, with, with the movie having those, those themes that it wants to tackle about these grown children grappling with that stuff. I think, I think the theme is fine, but I think it is in, it, 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 it leads you to, think you are um clever for uncracking its metaphor and i think the metaphor is just too too blatantly obvious uh after especially after so many horror movies have done this in recent years yeah i i don't i i think we might disagree there i think that the way that the theme arrives is part of the thing that makes the theme um reasonable or or you know uh, have purpose and I think that the theme we're presented with is fine in hereditary it is fine and it comes at night um, in a different way you know grappling with death but here you have you know very just ba- basic by the book filmmaking that isn't trying to to say anything deeper than the the premise of the theme and that's where there's a problem, right? Like Ari Aster in Hereditary introduces a lot of, um, I, I would say, filmmaking goodness on top of a very engaging story that's full of surprises and and fun. Um, I, I mean, th- there's just no real sincerity here. There's the writer sat down and came up with the theme he wanted to, to tell you about, and then he just made a movie that that the hammer just hits the nail on the head in the most dull monotonous tone possible. Yeah. I think it is quite creepy at times. I will give it that. I think there are some genuinely decent scares. There is one shot where the brother goes to the window and sees his mom floating out in the yard creepy shot that gave me the chills a little bit i think there's some decent bits of directing here but not to get repetitive but i think it gets repetitive yeah i i will absolutely concede that he is successful in crafting moments of terror or or horror Mm -hmm. um however the the sacrifice for doing that is that the entire rest of the film is very much empty it does not have the the pulse of you know something you know, not even at the peak of of horror filmmaking but just something more in between um I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head but it the the story never feels like it is for itself it feels like mm-hmm. it is there to serve the objective of scaring the audience and delivering the theme at the end yeah, it's funny. Usually I feel like within horror franchises, you can usually sense a um, some motive, some uh, one upsmanship they're, that they're going for from film to film. I kind of feel like you get your, you're seeing this within one single film here as mm-hmm. it just kind of escalates in intensity, but it's not getting any more interesting. Um, so, yeah, we're not too positive on this one. No, I, I will say I think Marin had some interesting deliveries in her performance 
Um, she's really not ever given uh, much to do. Here she was given a little bit more. Um, I, I do think that she should be um, kept an eye on. I think that as she gets older, there's probably going to be more roles for her to, to graduate into. And I, I do think that she's one of those um, actresses who, who may increase with her renown as she ages. I would agree. I, I, I did like her quite a bit. I was less enthused with the actor, uh, Michael Abbott. Yeah. He was pretty forgettable for me, unfortunately. Flat. Um, pretty flat. He kind of looked like Roy from The Office, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Kind of a, should have just cast him. Uh, I kept thinking of Brightburn. Wasn't he in Brightburn? I believe um, so, yes. Yeah. I That's think not a good, good uh thing when when you're thinking about brightburn while watching a movie that's that's never good <laughs> not good but yeah i would i would second that that mar and ireland is probably the bright spot here um i i don't have much more do you have a favorite scene probably the one i mentioned the shot that spooked me the most was his uh seeing his mom floating around out in the farm um what about you um i don't really remember the specifics of it, but it's one of the first shots in like the first three minutes. There's just an outdoor shot, great uh, focus. I think it's tracking as the actor gets out of the gets out of his truck, and the sun's kind of rising. It's just really well lit, um, nice little tracking shot around the vehicle, and then it cuts, unfortunately. And it, it's little moments like that where you see this director cutting his own footage too much where just a longer lingering scene where I can follow a full track would have gone so far in a film like this. Um, There's so many moments where they, they walk through a a door and rather than showing the door get closed behind them, it's just boom, end of shot cut to the next thing. And instead of having that, that long lengthy um, cinematography that can really um, kind of, push up or, or bump up the, the material that's being shown. Yeah, I, I'm not totally sure I'm thinking of the exact same thing, exact same scene you're talking about or we're talking about at the beginning. But if it's the one I'm thinking of, is it around sunset? I remember there were a couple of shots Maybe of that sunset. were like gorgeous. Um, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It, yeah, here I'm literally just going for the best looking shot because yeah. there were some, especially in the beginning that I thought just looked real good. Totally. They are at the beginning though, huh? Yeah. And, and I was like, this is exciting. And then it just got worse and worse and worse. Um, but alas, let's get on alas. to Sydney Lamette's network. What the hell's going on? Prepare yourself for a perfectly outrageous motion picture. Howard Beale went up there last night and said what every American feels, that he's tired of all the bull... Thanks, Diana. We're talking about putting a manifestly irresponsible man on national television. I am not putting Howard back on the air. It's not your show anymore, Max. It's mine. I got a feeling I'm being made. You are. Got to warn you, I, I don't do anything on my first date. We'll see. I want a show developed based on the activities of a terrorist group. Well, Ahmed, I want to make a TV star out of you. Just like Archie Bunker. For the number one show in television! We're number one! We're number one! There is no America. There is no democracy. There is only IBM and DuPont and Exxon. And you have meddled with the 
primal forces of nature. And you will atone. All right, Michael. We are going to be covering Sidney Lumet's Dog Day Afternoon, so we thought it would be fun to punch up this episode with a little bit of homework on Sydney. What do you think of Network? I really enjoyed Network. Um, yeah, lots to talk about here from themes to performances to maybe a little bit about Lumet's direction and style, but I'll, I'll leave it there just to get your take. Very positive on it. What about you? <laughs> I'm also um, positive on it. I don't know where I'm somewhere between four and four and a half. I think I don't know which way I'm leaning. Um, th- this is definitely one of his better films that I've seen. And the, the screenplay and the dialogue exchanges, I think are just excellent. You have some sumptuous office cinematography, which I'm always a fan of because there's nothing quite so drab as an office. And whenever it looks really good, like it did last year in Dark Waters. I'm always quite thrilled. He's got some great um, moments of capturing the lights being reflected off of the glass behind uh, Faye Dunaway in, in one portion of the of the film. So I'm quite positive on it as well. Yeah. Um, we have some uh, fairly big heavy hitters cast-wise. We have uh, kind of the four big players are Faye Dunaway, William Holden, Peter Finch and Robert Duvall. Um, mm-hmm. Ned Ned Beatty has a notable supporting character or yeah, supporting performance. He's the CEO of the company, right? Or maybe mm-hmm. the uh, I, yeah, I think he's right. the CEO. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's about a t- television network whose ratings are basically in the dump. It begins with one particular anchor whose uh, news program. Howard, is, right? That's Howard Beale, played. Mm-hmm by Peter Finch. His ratings are particularly uh, slow. And he, as the film gets going, he announces on the air that he's going to kill himself a week from that day, mm-hmm. live on the news. And, uh, and a very publish- funny scene. A very Absolutely. funny scene. Because the production studio, uh, everyone's not paying attention and has their headphones off besides like one PA who's on the shooting floor outside the studio. So they have no idea that he's just announced he's going to commit suicide. And then the, the PA is running and no one believes them for a little bit. It's it's a nice little hammy scene. It's yeah, totally. That's a great scene, especially because like the network's problem is that nobody's watching the news. Nobody's watching it. Mm-hmm. And not even they are watching the news. And they totally missed this. That that's brilliant and, and super funny. Um and there's some repetition there where I think like if I'm remembering correctly, someone comes in and they're like, you know, Howard just said he's going to kill himself on the news. And then they're like, did Howard just say he's going to kill himself on the news? Yeah. Howard said he's going to kill himself on the news next week. There's some repetition. And throughout the script, um, there are little callbacks and echoes like that, that I think are really funny. I I 100% agree. It's the, I I think it's the dialogue of the screenplay with, Sydney's direction for shooting really good looking scenes that's the reason why this thing works because without the dialogue if you just go off the premise it wouldn't be that interesting but it's because you can get lost in these characters and the relationships they have with each other that that this really delivers um I, I think something that's very much in that fairy tale um genre where it's a parable if you will about um you know things in general where someone's unhappy they say they're going to kill themselves 
and then we have our ending in which um, the thing that he had said would happen happens in a different way against his will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and was definitely satire. This is satire about the kind of decline of television news from you know fact-based journalism into sensational programming. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> one of my favorite kind of aspects of the story is that Faye Dunaway's character Diane isn't someone within the news part of the organization who comes up with this idea. I like that she's coming from narrative programming mm-hmm. and the just the problems with that that someone without journalistic a journalistic background would be uh, the showrunner for this. And it just um, you know further gets at that that idea that this is the creation of infotainment. Because mm-hmm. that she's coming from entertainment, she she's like this. If we want ratings, this should be not news. This should be entertaining. Um, I think that's Poignant. a clever switch. Yeah, for sure. I, I think it's relevant uh, to contemporary life in in quite a big way. Um, mm-hmm. As as we watch cable news networks die and they continue to generate more features, um, you know. I, I do think that's an astute point that the film makes. Um, I, I love that it was happening so early on. Um, there's a, a moment in which the man who is has left his wife for Faye Dunaway near the end um, says, why am I even writing this this book about the, the grand old days of network news television? There were no grand old days of network news television. This is all bullshit. Nobody wants to read this. And I just... Uh, I love that scene so much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff. Um, what else? I kind of like that there is a scene where Diana is pitching her idea for the program and she talks, I think it's to Howard, not to Howard, it's to, to Max, uh, Max Schumacher, the head of the news department. Yes. And is talking to him about how their shift towards sensationalism has already started and she's just leaning into it. And because that's how they're going to have success. She she said something like, um, you only had a minute and a half of news on last night's program. Anyways, the rest of it was car accidents, the story of a baby. Don't tell me, you know, that you're, you've really retained your standards. So I like that she is, not just the one she's not totally bringing this about herself. Mm-hmm. Um, she is capitalizing on a trend that the the news people have already kind of let happen um, and is just pouring more gas on the fire, I guess. Yeah, I, I was um, I already mentioned to you that I think that right when this film ends, you should just start right up with um, Putney Swope on the helicopter, have him get out with the briefcase and go do uh, the, the takeover of the board. But I, I also think that this movie would be a great pairing with Nightcrawler. I think that there's a mm. lot of similarities between them that, that would have been a very interesting perspective piece or, or like a feature to, to read about the, the differences in depicting um, violence and, and purposeful storytelling that's false inside of that. Because by the end of Nightcrawler, well, you know what happens. <clears throat> very similar themes that they are taking for sure. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to mention the beginning of Network, which I, I think has one of the greatest pieces of dialogue exchange um, from the 1900 cinema in which um, Howard and his friend um, 
who had been the head of the network but is then pushed off who's dating Faye Dunaway I don't remember what that actor's name is or his character name unfortunately but they're they're having this interaction at the bar great close-up dark screen and he's talking about killing himself and how good those ratings are going to be and the back and forth just pitter-patter of that dialogue for those first five minutes I think is just some of the most memorable sharp film um, between two characters talking to each other that I can think of from the 1900s. Yeah, totally. I know exactly what you're talking about. That's within the first few minutes. And I like, that was one of the things I had in my notes. They're talking about the kinds of television they know would sell. Mm-hmm. And Mac, Max, the guy you're talking about, not the news anchor, the, the, the his boss, his yeah. boss essentially is describing some things on the, that, that you know that would sell he says suicides assassinations mad bombers mafia hitmen murder in the barbershop and he kind of goes on and on and that and that's all like he's clearly being sarcastic mm-hmm. partly serious but he knows it would actually sell and then it's not too many scenes later that Faye Dunaway's character Diana is describing the kinds of content she wants for real and she's Which dead serious. The same thing yeah and she says maybe they'll take movies of themselves kidnapping heiresses hijacking 747s bombing bridges it's like the 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 switch from sarcasm to reality um it's really funny and there's kind of a callback even in that pitter patter that you're talking about mm-hmm. they mean it sarcastically she means it as what will sell well i i don't think howard meant it sarcastically when he said he was going to kill himself not that part no yeah for the for the shares so yeah i think that there was a level of sincerity though not something that he wanted i think that he was like stating a fact that that's what what sells but not that he wants that right right yeah there there is a difference like howard is genuinely losing it max when he's talking about that stuff i think is more uh business uh, perspective removed aware that this is what his managers want but not something that he wants as a human and he knows that's what the people want mm-hmm. um i do uh, like that this is uh, a satire of not just them leaning into this sensational kind of news but the fact that they know people will will eat it up um, mm-hmm. i think i think they i think the film is aiming at the audiences just as much as the uh, content creators i guess yeah, it's, it's very much, you know, just a continuation of the public hanging, essentially, where everybody just mm-hmm. wants to, to go watch. Um, <clears throat> what do you think of the um, constant um, back, or, or what would that be, the constant mentioning of I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore that, that slowly builds up in the film? Oh, I think it's hilarious. <laughs> Partly, I mean, you know, the idea that um, just the power of catchphrases and slogans over facts and reason is, um, I I, I think that's, it gets at that idea pretty, pretty effectively, especially because you yourself kind of want to yell it at some points. Um, And it's just too funny to watch Howard start yelling that at the first point i think that's like such a hilarious arc he has it's practically like a metamorphosis between the just everyday kind of boring news anchor to this preacher like wacko is just so funny i mean i i it is justifiably a famous line yes Um, i i I, I kind of answered your question so (laughs) back to you (laughs) 
I, I think that um, I didn't quite realize the first maybe three times it occurs that it was a double entendre. Mm. Because he's literally going mad. Oh, oh, I see. And he's inciting see. people to say the word mad um, in a different, in the context that he means it. Meanwhile, the context that he means it is coming from a madman. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, I do think that by the end, it is truly a, a hilarious line because all these people are saying this thing um, that a madman is telling them to say. Yeah, <clears throat> which totally. is even more poignant than I think the the other points that the film makes. Yeah, you know, you use the word poignant, which you know, it's not the first word that would have come to mind, but it is poignant. There, the, there are poignant aspects of this when you think about the fact that Howard collapses at the end of each of these shows. The dude needs help, uh-huh. but people are cheering euphorically at each collapse which are funny but you're right they are also poignant like this guy is in not is not in good shape well there in particular near the end there is a a part where he he does that and there's a slow uh zoom in it's a great shot on his his body and you can't tell if he's supposed to be lifeless or not you can see his chest rising but you don't know if that's just you know filmmaking um uh, in the rush where he they just couldn't get a scene where it didn't show his chest rising and falling so they just left that in um so you don't really know that he's alive until quite a bit later when he's still alive on like a television screen yeah 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 i think it's it's kind of interesting that in in many ways the movie is not subtle like the the news network people you know say exactly what it is they're thinking and what they're going to do like i think diane at some points explicitly says like the people want someone to express their rage. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's exactly what they want. There's nothing there's, you don't even have to do any really like re- reading between the lines, but the dialogue never reads as um, heavy handed or, or obvious. And I think that's partly just kind of rhythm and, and the, the passion in some of the speeches, they, they feel like speeches people. This is kind of loud acting. There's, there's lots of literally, lots of literal yelling mm-hmm. um yeah uh, the way like the the subtext kind of just feels like the text in a way they say exactly what it is that they want to do <laughs> yes they they bring a, a woman on board or diane brings a woman on board um to help her get like the terrorist footage and she's mm. super against it and and is very concerned morally ab- about um what that would mean if they were doing it for like the news or whatever and then by near the end she's yelling at diane to get howard off the air because he's ruining her ratings and Mm. it's it's just such a great moment that's part of the reason i think putney smoke fits right in after this because it's the the radicalization um as soon as it, it starts having mappable profit margins from advertising it too falls into the same line yeah yeah for sure um performances i think are are all pretty great i i really like they done away um for uh yeah I, I think she's she's very consistent and just the um yeah she's great uh, howard the guy who plays howard beale as well just so funny I, I mean he has the most he has the clearest arc right from mm-hmm. going to this just sad sack dude into uh total 
midlife crisis uh wacko yeah yeah pretty fun pretty fun transformation um yes i i mean i could talk about this for a long time but is there anything else you want to dig into on the story side or, or theme um give me one second i had some other i think i had other thoughts well i guess i should just say that there's a lot of dialogue that i'm still not quite sure what to do with or how it just fits into kind of the broader themes of the movie which has to do with um max and diane's relationship when they're talking about their relationship as if it were a movie or something like that mm-hmm. I, I love all that i think it's very entertaining um when they're I, I don't talking know, about I, his coxmanship yeah yeah exactly um it almost feels like there's kind of a separate I, there's there's kind of a different idea there about um I don't know, us thinking about our lives as if they were entertainment or something like that, that's sort of separate from the primary satire. I, I wasn't quite sure what to do with all that, but um, I, I it was intrigued by it. I, I think that. you're right. I I believe that them, <clears throat> their, their relationship particularly serves as a kind of news feature in the film mm-hmm. itself in which we are watching two people go through the motions of something that we already know the predictive outcome of. And mm-hmm. rather than try to sell us on the sincerity of that, the screenwriter very astutely just delivers the goods um, in like mm-hmm. the first dialogue where he's leaving his wife, telling her that he's going to come back to her because that's the happy ending that they want essentially. Um, yeah. And I, there, there's a few other things that I think kind of fit into that that are like mini stories, but that's kind of our feature other than Howard going mad. Oh, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then the other thought I had, this is just a smaller nugget. There's the joke that Max keeps telling throughout the movie. We hear like a fragment of it at the beginning. You kind of hear the rest of the joke at a different, at a later point in the movie. And it's it's not a joke. It's actually a story about him one time having to like jump in a cab in his pajamas and his overcoat to go to the Washington, George Washington bridge for a story. And mm-hmm. the um, cab driver thinks he's going to commit suicide and tells him not to do it. But just that little, that image of him in that story in his pajamas with the overcoat on in the rain is the same thing that we see Howard do right mm-hmm. at the one point he, when he delivers his, his key slogan, um, just a funny little rhyme i don't know what the what the idea is there and i don't there there might not be one but i just thought that was a funny little echo i guess Um, yeah i I think that it's more than anything just that echo of craziness rather than trying to make a point that's deeper yeah i think the dialogue does all the point making itself and and all the other stuff is just fun repetition i i mean that could have just been something that lumet said let's let's repeat that right here yeah what should you wear just go with the pj thing yeah 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 yeah. put them in that wardrobe um that's where i think lumet has really great filmmaking and that he can he can take a screenplay and not change it at all but manufactured the film to accentuate the greatness of the screenplay mm. um I, I believe he he did do quite a few revisions um to geez about half the screenplays if i'm remembering i, I read his book make on making movies and um he he normally didn't like to mess with the dialogue but he would often change like locations or or times um you, 
just customize stuff to to try to make it fit into a, a better spinning top that stays spinning a little bit longer than it would have otherwise. Mm. That's interesting. I think I'd actually heard the like the opposite. I'll have to check my sources, but I thought this was one where he was um where the script was sacred. And I thought I remember that because one word that got slipped in was in the big slogan where he says, I'm as mad as hell. And the script says, I'm mad as hell. I think I read that as just an anecdote with that. With that was one line that actually that that's where one little word was slipped in. I could be wrong, but I thought this is one where the script was. So, so to be clear, I'm not script. saying the dialogue. I'm just saying like the other mm. stuff, like exterior, this, that, like, mm. I think that he, he really, goes in and, and does a lot of homework to make that stuff work in the setting and all that type of stuff costume. Um, but like you said, yeah, he sticks to the text of the the words, but mm. anything that's not the words per se, I, I think he has quite a bit of play with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just to return to where we started with the range. I think I'm with you that it, for me, it's probably about a four out of five. The only reason is because, well, I don't know if it's really a, a reason or not, but as you describe the direction, I would, I would think I would describe it in some similar ways. I don't describe it as particularly flashy direction. It seems pretty workman-like. Um, I do think I gravitate towards movies that have just a bit more kind of cinematic style to them. This does feel like an actor's movie, a writer's movie. Um, I could be wrong. Some, you know, maybe if this just sticks with me, I would up, I would up it. But I do personally like something with just a little more pizzazz to the visuals um and to, the, to what the camera is doing pizzazz. he doesn't and that's fine and i think but the thing is i think that's right for the material so i can't really criticize it for that but um i think sometimes that's what gets me up into those upper echelons i guess mm -hmm. is something that's formally really that formally really wows me and, yeah more um, engaging yeah but that just really doesn't make sense. I don't. I don't know that that would work for the material all that well. So I might. Um, I might revise upwards at a later date. We shall see. Yeah, I'm. I'm with you. It's. It's definitely one that the rating doesn't really mean as much as the heart. Mm, gotcha. Gotcha. I like it. Uh, favorite scene. My favorite scene is. Um, gosh. Well, I guess it's. I don't know if this is necessarily my favorite, but the one that just immediately pops into mind is when we do get those shots, speaking of pizzazz, the shots when we see everybody leaning out their windows and shouting, I'm mad as hell and oh, those I'm not going to take it anymore. Those look great. Yeah, because I think there is like some lightning or something at the moment. Like you're seeing the whole sides of buildings lit up mm -hmm. uh, and the idea that this is, you know, um, a lightning bolt of a moment, um, a turning point for the network, I think is pretty good. Um, I'll go with that. What about you? I will choose the final scene of the film in which you see Howard. He is assassinated by two men that have been sent to the network to not only kill him, but also work on the feature um, story where they can have a great launch to their, their new series. And as Howard is shot, he lies dying and bleeding and the camera for the network pushes up on his dead body and it's just it's such a great shot um i i love that shot of just the the camera on rollers being pushed up to the dead body of the news host yeah good ending
That's another one in the can.